So today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 52, the final passage of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 52. As you're navigating over to that section, which I invite you to do so you can follow along, let me open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your great grace and your kindness to us. We thank you for the great pains which, <clears throat> with which we have been delivered your living word. We thank you, Lord, how you inspired it and how you preserved it, how you've delivered it to us in our own language so that we know, might know who you are, what you've done, all that you have to say to us. We pray that today, Lord, from this passage, our hearts would overflow with rejoicing and joy and thankfulness to see what kind of God you are, how great your love is for us. Help us, Lord, to be people who are... Um, more and more inclined to be in your presence and to uh, take on your heart and your mind as we move through the life that you've given us. In your name we pray, amen. Five years after Richard Nixon left Washington, D.C. in tears and disgrace, something remarkable happened. He received an invitation to attend a formal state dinner at the White House as a guest of President Jimmy Carter, The purpose was to welcome Deng Xiaoping, who was coming on the first official visit of a leader of China to the United States. Now, Nixon, as president, of course, had been instrumental in the two countries' diplomatic relations. After all, only Nixon could go to China, they said. But now, given the circumstances, who would have expected that the former president would be brought back with all the pomp and dignity a presidency can offer? At the time, people, of course, speculated about how Nixon felt about it all. It's hard to imagine all the thoughts and emotions that would have been on his mind that night. Coming to a stop momentarily atop the stairs of the North Portico, just before entering the White House, a reporter asked him how it felt to be returning to his old home. His response, spoken softly, had little to do with the question. I'm here as a guest of the president and Mrs. Carter. I look forward to seeing them again. I don't want to comment on anything else, he said. Of course, invitations like that aren't common in political history, especially when your opponent is the one in power. In the closing sentences of the book of Jeremiah, we have a similar story that's even more extensive and more astounding. It's so unexpected because of the many long chapters that precede it. I mean, it's no surprise that a book whose musical soundtrack is Lamentations doesn't have a lot of bright spots in it. You hear about like the feel-good movie of the year. It always comes out around Christmas time. Bring the family. Everybody will leave feeling warm and fuzzy. Not Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not the feel-good book of the Bible. It is, in fact, one of the um, most sorrowful books of the Bible. Jeremiah is passage after passage of the failure of God's people to believe and repent and turn to the Lord. The last section of the book in particular catalogs the fall of the nation, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of thousands of people, the miserable last-ditch efforts of the remnant to wriggle out of the judgment of God through human means, only to be met by crushing blows on every side, and then the tragedy is complete. But then, on the very last page, in the very last chapter, in the very last paragraph, we're given four verses of hope, some of the most brilliant hope in all the Old Testament, hope that had been predicted through God or by God through Jeremiah long before, but it's still astonishing when it arrives. This portrait of hope stimulates us as readers to remember 
not only what God has done in the past, but what is still to come for our own lives and for this world around us. And when we find ourselves in time of confusion or difficulty or defeat or suffering, it's the true hope of God's grace that we must remember and cling to and fill our hearts with. So let's take a look at this remarkable story. Verse 31, on the 25th day of the 12th month of the 37th year of the exile of Judah's King Jehoiachin, King Evil Merodach of Babylon in, his first, in the first year of his reign pardoned King Jehoiachin of Judah and released him from prison. Jehoiachin became king at age 18. He reigned just about 100 days before he was forced to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and was taken to Babylon. He was imprisoned there for 37 years. All of Judea had been destroyed. The temple was gone. The gold, the bronze, the people, all of it was gone, wasted and destroyed. Growing up, Jehoiachin would have had all the time he needed to think about his spiritual life and his fate and how things had gone so wrong for God's people. After all, the prophets like Jeremiah had been active. God's word was still readily available for anyone who was willing to listen to it. And yet we're told in 2 Kings that when he came to the throne, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so now here we are, Jeremiah, he, he's there in a hopeless filth of a Babylonian dungeon year after year, decade after decade, with no hope of any change in his circumstances. And yet one day a messenger came. Nebuchadnezzar's son had given this man a pardon. In truth, it wasn't just one day. It was a very specific day. Did you notice there in verse 31 that God had been keeping count? Very close count. The 25th day of the 12th month of the 37th year. I'm guessing that Jehoiachin had long ago stopped making scratches on the wall of his cell to to log his time there. We see that in movies, right? The prisoner scratching into the soft brick. If the brick is that soft, why don't they just dig through it? That's what I wonder, but we see that, but... I I don't know how long I would last making marks in the wall, but I wouldn't last 37 years, that's for sure. I'm sure he stopped making scratches of the wall, stopped keeping count, but you know what? God did not stop keeping count of what was happening to this man. God is altogether all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent. There is no limit to his strength and his ability And so even though it seems impossible to our minds, the Bible reveals that he is mindful of every occurrence, of every hour, of every day of your life and the lives of every single person on the earth. He sees and he knows. And more than that, he has bent his thoughts and his affections towards you. That seems like an impossible thing to believe, but the Bible reveals it very clearly that that is what God is thinking about right now in all of his ability and all of his power and all that he could be thinking about and could be doing, he has decided to fill his thoughts with you and with me and the other people here on the earth. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. It says, God, how precious are your thoughts toward me. How vast is the sum of them. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. That's not just for one person or two or super special people that he really likes. That's for each and every one of us here this morning. You know, in election years, candidates go out on their stump speeches and they work hard to come across as people who care about the little guy, right? They want your vote. They make pledges to watch out for those that they call the working class or average Americans. Of course, those terms themselves betray what politicians really think of people, the little guy, average Americans, those sorts of things. 
But even if a candidate is well-meaning about the citizens they hope to represent, no fallible human being can know how some of their decisions might negatively impact people. How could they keep track of such a thing? They couldn't. We understand they're just sort of making promises in a vacuum, and we have very little, uh, very little hope that they would actually keep those promises. But the Bible makes it very clear that God is ever mindful of everything going on in your life, of all the suffering of all the people of this earth, and he has made it his business to bring relief and redemption to it. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of bad things happening to people. He is not the author of our suffering. Look at Jehoiachin as an example. Why was he in this dungeon? He found himself there because of his wickedness and his nation's refusal to accept God's mercy year after year, generation after generation, as God waited and waited and waited and gave them decade after decade to please turn toward him, to please go his way, to please do what was right instead of what was wrong. And all the while, he said, if you don't do this, eventually you're going to go over a cliff and judgment will happen. Please don't go. And he sent prophet after prophet. He sent sign after sign. He sent all of these things. And yet again and again, the people of Judah, represented here by Jehoiachin, refused to listen to God, refused to go his way, refused to believe that judgment was coming. And so uh, God was trying and trying, and yet they rejected him, and so judgment had come. God wasn't the author of that suffering. Jehoiachin was there in that cell because of his wickedness and his nation's refusal to accept God's mercy. And yet, in spite of all of that, God had still not forgotten him. Even for a crooked king like this, God had abundant grace. And one day the prison gates swung open. But that was just the start. Verse 32 Evil Merodach spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Though guilty, the Jewish king received a pardon. But then he was also given a throne, a place of honor and respect in the court of the greatest empire on the planet at the time. Jehoiachin had no reason to expect such treatment. He had no reason at all. But look at what God was able to do. He was able to use a Babylonian king to show compassion and favor toward his people. Evil Merodach, it seems, was genuine in his actions toward Jehoiachin. He spoke to him with kindness. He didn't have to. He kept him in mind. He didn't have to. He made it his business to grant him gifts and positions that Jehoiachin, as a conquered foreign foe, had absolutely no claim to. And so the analogy to us here in the 21st century is direct. Of course, we shudder to compare our matchless King Jesus to someone as base as evil Merodach, but we can't help but be reminded of the astonishing work of generous grace that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We, who were in all ways guilty, who were held captive by sin, have been granted a full pardon through the personal work of our King who paid the cost himself that we might not only be set free, but then given a place in his great kingdom. He has set thrones out for his people, allowing us to rule and reign with him in his coming kingdom. We have no reason to expect such kindness. We have no right to claim such a position, but this is what God has done for us. Coming as light into the darkness of our sins so that we wouldn't have to stay there, but instead be rescued and transformed and lifted up. This is an amazing, 
picture of what God has done for us. Verse 33, so Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes. He dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. It's explained in 2 Kings 25 that evil Merodach gave him these new clothes. And so we see the, the genuine kindness that he's showing towards Jehoiachin. He's not bringing him out to make sport of him or to mock him. This happens sometimes in uh, these sorts of kingdoms or these sorts of empires. Back in the book of Judges in chapter one, we learn about a king named Adonai Bezek. He, we are told that he had 70 kings who begged for scraps under his table. He had cut off all their big toes and cut off all their thumbs and he was entertained by their hardship. I don't know what kind of dinner party you like to go to. Have <laughs> you ever been to like a friend's house and hey, if your dog begs at the table, God bless you. But let's say you go to a friend's house and their dog begs at the table and maybe you're not used to that. Have you ever had that? Like a dog who's kind of getting into your business and like hitting on your leg and kind of like pushing on your chair a little bit because you're trying to eat your pasta. Now imagine it, imagine it's 70 dudes with no thumbs and no toes and they're like, please give us food. And you're thinking, this is not my kind of party. This is not my kind of scene here. That's what Adonai Bezek was doing. It's a, a perverse thing and a sad thing that, that used to be common in empires like this. Or we think of Samson after he was uh, uh, made a prisoner that gouged out his eyes. The Philistines throw this big party. What do they say? Bring that guy out. We want to make sport of him. That's not what's happening to Jehoiachin here. It's not a prank. It's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, anything like that that they're doing. But it's interesting. Jehoiachin also isn't being treated the way Pharaoh treated Joseph back in Genesis 41. That's another story of uh, one of the Hebrew people being brought out of prison and elevated in the court. Why did that happen? Well, Joseph was installed by power by the grace of God so that, you know, uh, the coming famine wouldn't destroy a bunch of life, and particularly the family of Israel. But from Pharaoh's perspective, Joseph had something to offer. He was going to take quite a bit off of Pharaoh's plate administratively. He was going to do a job and he seemed to have his finger on the pulse of some supernatural stuff. He could interpret dreams and he had a lot of wisdom. And so Pharaoh said, well, man, this guy's going to make my administration a lot better. He's going to take a lot of work for me. And so we're going to install him into power. That's not what's happening to Jehoiachin either. You know, they're not making sport of him, but at the same time, he offers nothing. He brings nothing to the table except for himself. And yet, despite the fact that he has nothing to offer, nothing to commend himself, no reason to expect this kind of treatment, he receives liberty and a throne and new clothes and feasting in the presence of the king for the rest of his life. That's incredible generosity. Of course, this is a pale comparison to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Listen, no matter who you are, what you've done, what you have achieved, what kind of family you come from, anything like that, no matter how high you've climbed on the ladder of society or anything, doesn't matter. Each and every one of us here today, we are bankrupt before the God of heaven. Bankrupt. We offer nothing to him. We have nothing to commend ourselves to him. He, he doesn't look down and say, oh man, I will be impoverished if I don't add that person into my, into my household. Quite the contrary. We add nothing to his power, nothing to his splendor, and yet it pleases him to bless us. Why? Because he is a God of love. He created you because he loves you. And his desire is to pour out his love and his grace and the riches of his blessing into your life. That's his desire. 
His desire is to give us a robe of righteousness, to give us thrones and crowns in his kingdom, to feast with us forever and eternity, face to face with our creator and father and savior, to allow us to be in his presence for the rest of our everlasting lives. Presidential pardons are always interesting news. There's usually a flurry of them right at the end of a term, especially if the president is outgoing and people always talk about, did you see this? Did you see that? Look at this person he pardoned, that sort of thing. It's a rare gift to have the highest office in the land wipe your slate clean. But when people are pardoned, they don't then become members of the president's cabinet. That would be weird. You know what would be even more weird? If the president said, I'm pardoning you you, and now I'm going to adopt you as a son. That'd be weird. That's never happened. And yet that's exactly what God has done for us. The more we ponder on God's grace and and what he's done on our behalf as his people, the more astounding it is. And the more we think about it, the more we should realize and reflect upon the fact that he is the most kind, the most compassionate, the most generous person to ever exist. God gets blamed for a lot of things. People have a a lot of resentment or negativity towards God, especially those outside of the church, sometimes even within the church. We harbor these little resentments about what we think God should have done. And certainly outside of of the family of God, people are angry at God and blame him for things. If we read the Bible and see who God is and what he's actually done, he's truly the most kind person to ever exist. Of course, he's eternal, but you understand what I mean. He's the most compassionate to ever exist. He's the most generous to ever exist. No one can come close to matching him in any of these attributes of his love. Verse 34 says this, as for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death for the rest of his life. The Lord was not only showing the power of his mercy, but he was also showing his great faithfulness. You know, back in Jeremiah 31, God had promised that despite the guilt of his people, despite their refusal to obey, despite all the judgment that would have to be poured out on them as a result of their sin, one day restoration would come. One day God would make a new covenant with them and remember their sins no more. He said that. He promised it. And now we see that he's doing it. Movements of God's grace like this and like we see here in chapter 52 are simply down payments on what God has promised to be yet future for us and for this world. He will not forget. He will not withhold. He will not fail to do all that he has promised for us and our families in this world. God is not like a politician who makes lots of promises on the campaign trail and then hopefully keeps one or two of them. No, God keeps all of his promises perfectly just as he says he will. And we can take it to the bank. We're looking here at Jeremiah 52. He says, I will do this. And then you fast forward a few chapters and he says, and here's when I did it. And to us, God says, I will do the following things for your life as an individual, for your family, for your community, for this world altogether. We're studying a lot of them in our verse-by-verse studies through the book of the Revelation on Sunday mornings. It's going to happen. It's sure. It is God's will. It's, it is history written in advance. He's going to do it, and we can trust in him. We still look forward to that time of final restoration when God brings to completion all that he has been working on these thousands of years. It's coming. It's a true hope. 
If we find ourselves in some dark cell of suffering or difficulty, we can be sure of what God will do. He will overcome the world. He will deliver us home. He will finish the faith that he began in us. The question we can't help but ask many times is, well, why doesn't relief come sooner? Why doesn't help come today instead of tomorrow or 37 years from now? God's a God of very specific timing. His ways are sometimes beyond us finding out. We understand that. But we can be sure that he will do what he has promised. And and even more importantly than that, or, or as importantly as that, is that we can be sure that he is working even now to accomplish his great purposes. God's not on lunch. He's not on vacation. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. He's busy in the sense that we think about it. He's busy right now. What is he busy with? He could be doing anything he wanted to. I mean... Theoretically speaking, he could be off in creating a, a different universe somewhere if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, okay, well, I created this universe. I put human beings on the earth. They really fouled things up. Why don't I fix that? Not just on the grand scale of, you know, putting that creation back together, but going all the way down into individual lives. I want to work in the life of every single individual who allow me to work in their life putting their lives back together, filling their lives with living water, using them for eternal purposes, bringing families together and and spiritual families together and having them impact time and eternity in all these different ways. That's what God is doing right now. He's busy working in your life, in my life, in the life of the person sitting next to you, in the row in front of you, in the town over and all on the continent over. That's what God is doing right now. From the breaths you're taking, which are from God, to the good works he prepared before the foundation of the world, inviting you to discover and walk in, to the ultimate finishing of your faith when you step from this life into eternity and receive your everlasting reward in his presence. God is busy accomplishing these and more in the individual lives of each of his children. That's what he's doing. But since that is true, then we say, okay, if God is all powerful and all loving, and if he's so busy accomplishing these things, then why is there so much difficulty? Why do we suffer? Why is there so much hurt around the world? Why does God seem to move so slowly in some situations? We can even look at this story, look at Jehoiachin's example, and we think, well, once Nebuchadnezzar turned his heart over to the Lord, why didn't he free the prisoners? If you're a student of Daniel, you know that at one point when Nebuchadnezzar was king, He's the worst person in the whole world, probably. But at one point, God humbles him, does a work in his life, and he gives his heart to the Lord. He says, I recognize that the God of the Bible is the God of heaven and earth. He turns his heart to the Lord. I mean, I think we have it on pretty good faith that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven when we get there, which is weird and crazy and exciting when we think about it. But then why didn't Nebuchadnezzar let this guy out of prison? We don't know exactly. Jehoiachin would have to wait 37 years before he received these generous gifts. Now we, in our own lives, when we think about our difficulty, our suffering, our struggles, we may have to wait much longer than 37 years. But that is acceptable because we know what is coming. Liberation from sin. Liberation from suffering. Glorious feasting in the presence of Almighty God. It is a sure thing. 
We can join with Paul the Apostle and say this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, once wrote this, though the night of affliction be very long, yet we must not despair for the day will dawn at last. Hope is coming, real hope. God's going to do what he says he's going to do. You know, there are a lot of possible reasons why President Carter decided to bring Nixon back to the White House that day. It was a choice that was sure to offend many people. One suggestion is that it would be a political move to silence conservative critics at the time. It's also reported that Carter initially refused the idea of having Nixon at the dinner, but that Deng Xiaoping said that if he wasn't brought in, he would simply travel to California to meet with Nixon there. So we don't know exactly why it happened. It's an interesting story all the same. Now, God's plan to work his grace and his mercy and his generous love in our lives has no such political motivation. He blesses us out of love. That is his motivation for his actions. It's also the motivation for his long suffering. A big piece of of why suffering happens is because God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And people say, well, I'm dying right now. I've got this disease or I've got, no, we're not talking about perishing physically. We're talking about perishing eternally. And God doesn't want anyone to spend an eternity separated from him in hell. He wants them all to come to repentance, but that takes time to save a soul. Many of us here today are believers in Jesus Christ. All of us didn't get saved at the same time on the same day. I'm sure if we took a poll, there would be a staggering of years and decades and generations even. Aren't we glad that the Lord waited until the day after we were saved before he wrapped up all of this stuff and put an end to the suffering of the world? Of course we are glad. And the Lord's long suffering is motivated out of love. His providence and his constant efforts are motivated out of love. But these gifts of grace and forgiveness and salvation are like any gift. They must be received in order to be effective in your life. God will not force you to receive his love. He will not force you to love him back. He will not force you to receive the pardon that he freely offers you. Did you know that in 1833, there was a man named George Wilson who was in prison for a variety of crimes. He was well-connected. And so his friends managed to pressure President Andrew Jackson who gave this man a presidential pardon. And then they let him know And he refused it. I don't exactly know why, but he did. He refused the presidential pardon. And people didn't know what to do. That never happened before. And people started scratching their heads. Well, well, what do we do? Ultimately, they had to send the case to the Supreme Court of the United States for them to decide. And they decided that a person cannot have a pardon forced upon him. Rather, it must be freely accepted. And so while records aren't 100% clear, it seems that George Wilson hung for his crimes. It was a completely needless waste of life. Who knows why or what, what, what all happened, but out of some sort of sad disgusting pride or vanity or bitterness or anger. He said no to this presidential pardon. Maybe he didn't like where it came from or maybe he didn't like what it would say about him or or who knows. But he said, yeah, no, I'd rather die. I'd rather swing for my crimes than walk free from this prison today. 
You know, if you've never been born again, the Bible says, Jesus said, you must be born again. If you've never been born again, you are imprisoned in your sin and your sentence is an eternity in hell. You may not feel the weight of your guilt today, but the Bible explains very clearly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person in the room today, it explains that the wages of sin is death, that no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who gave himself for our sins so that we could be saved and washed clean and reconciled to God. He is the gift that rescues us from hell and from this present evil age. And he transforms us from the inside out. It's the only way to be saved. It's the only way out of the dungeon of sin and death. He alone overcame sin and death and was the victor over them and now offers everlasting life. But you must receive it in order to enjoy it. Won't you receive his pardon today? You can right now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, I've never been born again. I don't really know what that means. I've never called out to God and asked him to save me from my sin. You can do it today. And it's very simple. The Bible says it's by grace you are saved through faith. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you will believe on Jesus, you will not perish, but will receive everlasting life. And the great news is that you can do so right now from where you're sitting in the quiet of your heart. Just call out to God, ask him to save you, tell him that you believe in him, that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that you need his salvation and the forgiveness of your sins and allow him to accomplish that rescue work he's so desperate to do in your life. We've been watching in horror this week, that condo collapse in Florida. It's a terrible tragedy, obviously. Imagine for a moment, you're one of the rescue workers there working in the rubble, doing whatever you could to save life, going to great pains yourself to try to save people. And that you clear away some slabs of concrete and rubble and there down below in arm's reach, you see a living victim, living but close to death their body crushed and mangled up by the rubble. And you say, take my hand, get you out of here, get you home and safe, get you healed up. And that person starts saying, this is your fault. This is what you did. Look what you did to me. Look at the pain I have. I'm not taking your hand at all. That would be an insane, absurd thing to happen. And yet that's what people who reject Jesus Christ's offer of salvation are doing every single day as he knocks on the door of their hearts and says, will you please receive my pardon? Will you please let me save you? I took your sin upon myself. I died on Calvary. I rose again three days later so that you could be saved from the prison of sin, from the penalty of death and brought into my family forever and ever. And so that you can receive part of my inheritance. I wanna give it all to you. I want you to rule and reign with me in my kingdom. I wanna fill your life with living water and give you everlasting life, not just on the other side of death. I wanna give you everlasting life now. I wanna surround you with a spiritual family that will build you up and, and fill your life with joy and rejoicing and all sorts of good things. And people say, no, this is all your fault. This is all your fault that I'm hurting and that I'm suffering and that things aren't the way I want them to be. If you're not a Christian here today, that's what you're doing to Jesus Christ who offers you a robe of righteousness freely if you will just receive it. 
Now, for those of us who are saved today, how might Jehoiachin's story speak to us? Most of all, it should cause us to fill our hearts with thoughts of how great and loving our God is. Often we're quick to read a passage and think, okay, well, what do I, what do I need to do to be better, to make God you know, feel better about me? Well, what do I need to do so that you know, I look better when God looks at me because he looks at me right now and he's kind of gags a little bit and I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tune it up a little bit. We're prone to do that. The Lord understands. But that's not how we should look at a passage. Instead, it's more important to simply meditate on who our God is and what he has done. It's his work. He's the one that has done so much for us. And when we do that, when we fill our hearts and our thoughts with what God has done for us, not generically, but personally, what God has done for you, it causes our hearts and our minds to fill up with thankfulness and praise and appreciation and devotion. It's only natural. It causes us to press into our Savior and trust him more and more. That's what God wants, because when we're in a position of trust and love and fellowship in the presence of God, from there, he's the one who transforms our lives. He's the one that does the operation in your life. He's the one that adjusts your thinking and your attitudes and gives you directions and opportunities and good works to walk in. In the opening chapters of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul reminds us of all that God has done for us. It has many parallels to this story in Jeremiah 52. And I'd encourage you, maybe on your drive home, throw in an audio Bible version of Ephesians 1 and 2 in particular. But there, Paul talks about how God has lifted us up and rescued us and lavished incredible spiritual riches on us and given us a new inheritance. As a result, Paul says, okay, so because of all this, this is what I want for you Ephesians and all Christians by extension, that we would understand more of the wealth of our glorious inheritance in Christ, that we would know what is the hope of his calling and that we would walk in it. Not that, so work harder and load more things on your back and and feel more badly about how imperfect you are. He says, no, I want you to know more of what God has done for you because that knowledge is going to make us chase after the Lord in a devoted excited way that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called, meaning that we believe God and follow him wherever he leads, leads, receiving along the way the extravagant gifts of grace and forgiveness and strength and peace and testimony that he wants to bestow in our lives. That like Jehoiachin, we would walk out of the darkness of sin and sorrow and bring ourselves to the king's table and then spend our lives in his presence that for the rest of our lives, we would enjoy the portion that he's offered each of us and pledge ourselves to serve him, enjoy him, praise him and honor him in whatever ways we can, that our lives would be beacons of heaven's hope, a true hope, one that changes everything and is ready to be received by every single one of us here today. Let's pray.